Some of you enjoy hobbies that are rather time-consuming, from auto repair to quilting to painting to golfing. Uh, one of the hobbies that is time-consuming for me that I enjoy is woodworking. And I'm an amateur, don't have a whole lot of skills, so I typically work on birdhouses. I know, that's lame, okay? I get it, I accept it. <clears throat> well, last year, I decided I'm going to stretch out a little bit and do something different. I wanted to make a specific table that fit in my office, and with a rustic look being in, I was going to make it out of pallets. And so I figured it's probably about a 10-hour project I had to work on here. So I, I collected all the pallets, cut them up, I drilled a hole through them, and put a three-foot rod in it and tightened it down. And then I put about 10 coats of polyurethane on the top of this thing. It was so slick you could skate on it. It was impressive. Well, I brought it into the office and set up in the office. Within one week, it starts cracking all over the place. Yeah, that was my take as well. I was like, I spent a lot of time on this, and now it's all cracking. So I took it home. I got rid of all the polyurethane. I ripped it all apart glued it all together again, put more polyurethane on it, brought it back in, and um, guess what? It cracked again. You're probably thinking, Brian, you should stick with birdhouses, right? <laughs> yeah. So I took it back, and what happened was uh, some of the wards, the grain on it was pushing out against each other and causing this. So I ripped it all apart, and I pulled those boards out. You can see here the picture of me clamping it all together, jury-rigging whatever I can to make sure it all sticks together, put more polyurethane on it, and finally brought it in. And so here's the finished product. Don't look real closely because there's a lot of mistakes in there. But I figured it probably took me about 25 hours to do all this. But it was worth it. It was worth it because it was something that I was wanting to do, and I enjoyed doing it. And so the, the reason that you all spend time in all your hobbies is because you find value in them. And as a society, we invest in whatever we have value in. We spend our time and our resources in things that have value to us. And as followers of Christ, Jesus gave us very clear instructions on what we should value. Luke 10, 27 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Loving God is about our relationship with him. And loving others is loving those people in our lives so that we can share the hope of Christ with them one time. See, for, for so long, the church has had this us versus them mentality that we've got to keep separate from people that believe and act differently than we do because we're, we're afraid of catching whatever they have. But the funny thing is that Jesus never did that. Jesus consistently spent time with people that the religious people didn't like because he saw that they needed him. They needed encouragement. They needed hope. And so if we're going to make an impact in our community, we've got to look for ways to invest in those that God has put us around. So I'm going to share two ways that we can do that today. The first way is to be present, just to be present. So the story that we're going to look at today, Jesus is pretty, pretty early in his ministry. He has just healed somebody. There's a, there's a frenzy around him. There's a flock of people following him wherever he goes. Like He's like kids handing candy out. And so there's, they can't wait to what he's doing. And so he's walking along, and we come with our text today in Mark chapter 2. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, they're the religious leaders, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So there's this this frenzy around Jesus waiting for what he's going to say next, what he's going to do next, who he's going to heal next, and he makes the decision to stop at a tax collector's booth. And a tax collector's booth, these were dregs of society, outcasts of society, because what they would do is they would add on extra taxes to pad their pockets. Nobody liked tax collectors. And so Jesus not only stopped there, he talked to this man. Man named Levi, we're better known him in his Greek name of Matthew, who wrote the first book in the New Testament. And so Jesus saw somebody who was an outcast from society and needed hope. And so he stopped and he talked with him. And I'm not sure what happened next or how it all happened, but Matthew takes all of his friends, all of his, I love it, tax collectors and sinners, invites them to his house and has a big party. So here it is, Matthew, all of the outcasts of society, the criminals, the thugs, the thieves, and they're there together, and Jesus is having a meal with them. In our time today, we don't eat meals with people that we don't know very well. It's it's a sign of relationship. It was even more so in biblical times. And so when Jesus shared a meal with Matthew and all of his outcasts, it spoke volumes to the community. And I love what happens next. The religious leaders, are, are, they're upset. They are appalled that Jesus would do something like this. He would have the audacity to talk to the tax collector and then invite him to his house and then invite him to follow him. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And the Pharisees were upset because they had the real us versus them mentality. They couldn't believe that Jesus was eating with, with them. That, oh, you, you shouldn't talk to them. You shouldn't spend time with them. But Jesus not only talks to him, but invites him in to what he's doing. And Jesus' response in Mark 2, 18, 17 says, On hearing this, the question about why does he do this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. See, Jesus is saying, you know what? You guys aren't as together as you think you are. I'm coming here, and I'm bringing hope to people who nobody else wants to talk to, that nobody else wants to spend time with. Jesus didn't come to fulfill a legalistic religious system. He came to help those who needed it. And one way that we we saw Jesus doing this is caring for people. And one way that he cared for people was being present. Wherever he was, he was fully there. You know, we talked last week about listening well. That's part of being present, is listening well. See, Jesus was fully engaged with whoever was there in front of him. He slowed down and looked at them and listened to their hearts and talked with them. When we lived in uh, Georgia, there was a, uh, my office was on the lower level of the church, and we had windows to the outside. And there was a guy that had been in the church a couple times by the name of Ken. And one day, I'm sitting there probably working on a sermon or something. Ken pulls up in his car right beside my window. I don't see him, and he starts banging as hard as he can on the window, scares me to death. And so I'm like, come on in, come on in. And so he comes around, and he proceeds to talk to me for several hours about whatever. 
And I'm like, seriously? I've got stuff to do. I've got a sermon to write. And I was frustrated with it. And uh, I went home that night and was talking to my wife, Kelly, and uh, wisdom comes out. She's like, Brian, did you ever think that maybe God put Ken in your life to talk to and help him? Ouch! Like, yeah, it's the truth. Ken was, a, was an alcoholic. He, he struggled in life. And that was a turning point for me. To be able to see people not as an interruption, but as an opportunity to see what we can do. And see, Ken died about a year after we moved up here. And I was glad that my wife pushed on me and encouraged me to take time to, you know, I was probably writing a sermon about loving people, right? And... Uh, yeah, and I, and I about blew it. But see, who are those people in your life that need you? Are people a blessing to you, or are they an interruption? You've got to ask that question. And so how do we practice the art of being present with people? And I think the, the, the main way we do it is that you see whomever or whatever's in front of you as most important. Because what tends to happen is we, we see this periphery of things going on around us, things that we might want to do or people we might want to talk to more, but whoever's in front of you is most important. And this next one was the one that, uh, that struck me, like, i got to work on this, and it's the, the simple phrase of remove next, remove next. Because so often when we're with people, what are we thinking? Well, I got to get to the next, next appointment. I got something to do next. I got the chores to do next. The, the grass has got to get mowed next. I've got to, I mean, what, it just keeps coming. And so we're not fully engaged with people. We're thinking about what we have to do next. And that leads us to the last one, and how we do this is just slow down. We have jam-packed our lives with so much stuff that we can't take five minutes and talk to somebody because that's going to put us off our schedule for whatever we have to do next. And so when we slow down and put margin in our lives to allow for those interruptions, because we don't know what God is doing. We don't know the people that God has put in your life that they need your encouragement, need your love, whatever that might be. If we slow down, we won't miss those things. And you, you may be sitting here saying, Brian, that's, that's nice. But you don't know my neighbor, you don't know my brother, you don't know my boss. You can just fill in the blank. They're so mean, they're so rude, they're so condescending, they're so far from God. But see, I think embracing the differences that other people have is a great way for us to practice the art of being present. Because see, the church needs to be a place where we accept people for who they are and then find out their story. And for so long, we've got that backwards. See, God does incredible things through messed up people. You're messed up, I'm messed up, everybody's messed up. Let's just do it together. See, who, who are the people in your life that other people tend to avoid? But Jesus would stop and have dinner at their house. Who are the people in your life that people run from, but God is calling you to run towards them? I love how Terry Muck, an author, tells a story about this whole idea of being present. He writes this. He says, he lived next door to a professing Christian, and they had a casual relationship as neighbors across the fence might have. Then the non-Christian's wife was stricken with cancer and died three months later. Here's part of the letter that he wrote afterward. 
I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. And after the service, I went on the path along the river and I walked all night. But I did not walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He did not speak. He did not walk beside me. He just followed me. And when the sun arose over the river, he came over and said, let's go get breakfast. And he closed his letter with this. I go to church now. I go to my neighbor's church. A religion that could produce that kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me was something I want to find out more about. I want to be like that. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. See, what made the difference in this guy's life what was not a three-point outline on why you need to believe a certain way. It was not an intellectual debate. You don't, have to, you don't have to be smart to love people well and to be present with people. But take the initiative to be there, to be present when people need it. And that leads us to the second way that we invest in people, and that's just to love them, love people. I love what Darren said a couple of weeks ago. He says, if we don't lead with love, we have no influence. We can't beat people over the head with doctrine and expect them to get it. We have to love them and love them well. You know, I read a couple books recently by Bob Goff, and they have really spurred me to really think about how to love and love well. Highly recommend you reading. They're fun reads, they're easy reads, and it's a great, he just, he's like the master of loving people. And he writes uh, in, in his last book, Everybody Always, he says this, he says, during a recent speaking engagement, I got into the back of the limo and I talked to the driver through the window that divided us as we traversed Orlando on the highway. The driver was friendly and engaging, and when we'd driven a short time, I said to him, you know, this is the first time I've ever been to Orlando, but if someone asked me what I thought about the city, you know what I'd tell them? I'd say, I think everyone in Orlando is terrific. You know why? Because you're a terrific guy. But then I also thought how the opposite was true. If the driver had been mean or rude or pushy, and I'd ask what people thought of people in Orlando, I would have said everybody in Orlando is mean, pushy, and rude. We do, we don't, we do that, don't we? That's how we think about that. And he says, neither statement would be true, but somehow because of the way we're wired, when we've met one person, it feels as if we've met everybody. And when I read that, it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like... What if we are the only influence of Christ in somebody's life? What if we are the only Christ follower that somebody knows? And what impact are we making? And unfortunately, I've learned that sometimes people go ahead of us and do things and say things that are extremely hurtful and damaging. My, uh, my next-door neighbors have had a, a pretty rough year they, uh, they tragically lost their son this past year to an overdose, and his wife was recently diagnosed with cancer. And on his Facebook page, he wrote the following after his son died. He said, I see so many posts about people receiving Narcan when they overdosed. It's pathetic. What makes it worse is people who claim to be Christians have said, let the junkies die. My son died of an overdose, and I would give anything if he could have been saved. If this is what being a Christian is all about, you can keep it because it's fake. Ouch. My heart broke 
for my neighbor. Not only did they lose a child, they had somebody who claimed to be a Christian telling them that he deserved to die. And so as much as I can, I'm trying to rewrite the story that somebody else wrote for my neighbor. See, we've got all kinds of people in our lives that need us to be present and to love well. And so when, when we're interacting with people, how do, how do people see Christians? Do they, do they see you as loving and kind and engaging and friendly? Or do they see you as grumpy and condescending and judgmental? Because that's how they're going to see Jesus. So what is it for us? Matthew 5, 14 and 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's Matthew 5. A couple of letters, chapters later in Matthew, there's a lawyer, comes up to Jesus and says, tell me, what's the greatest thing? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response is what we read earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. He said to love God and to love others. Bob Goff in his book writes this, he says, sometimes we see these two as separate ideas, but Jesus saw loving God and loving neighbors as an inseparable mandate. They were tied first in Jesus' mind. I think Jesus said these things, he says, is that he knew that we couldn't love God if we don't love the people he surrounds us with. He says, each of us is surrounded every day by our neighbors. They're ahead of us and behind us on each side of us. They're every place we go. They're sacking groceries and attending city council meetings. They're holding cardboard signs on street corners and raking leaves next door. They play high school football and deliver the mail. They're heroes and hookers and pastors and pilots. They live on the streets and they design our bridges. They go to seminaries and they live in prisons. They govern us and they bother us. They're everywhere we look. He says, it's the one thing we all have in common. We're somebody's neighbor and they're ours that's been god's simple yet brilliant plan from the beginning he made a whole world of neighbors we call it earth but god calls it a big neighborhood see i love the thought the world is just a big neighborhood and god is calling us to love others well i love how our, our church lives this out through a outreach we call tent day we go into two communities in the area, and we set up pop-up tents and cook meals. But the big thing is, is relationships. And so this year, we did a bike repair day for the kids. Now, these kids are riding all over the place on bikes that are in pretty bad shape. So my buddies Chris and Danny brought their tools and fixed over 40 bikes that week. And so they, they fixed anything from flat tires to broken chains to broken brakes. There was one little guy that was so upset that he thought his bike was broke beyond repair. And all that needed was air in the tires. And as, as, as he's riding off, he's saying, this is the best day ever. You know, loving your neighbor doesn't have to be complex. It takes time and it takes intentionality. So, so loving your neighbor could mean fixing your, your kid's bike, visiting them in the hospital, writing them a, a note of encouragement. Be friendly. You know, be friendly. I uh, met a new person here at church, uh, it's been several months ago, and introduced myself to him, and he said, you're the waiver. 
I said, what? You're the waver. I live down the street from you, and you wave at everybody. <laughs> I cracked up. I thought, at least I wasn't the grumpy guy that glares at everybody there. So wave at people in our neighborhoods. You know, maybe your family could bake cookies and take them to the new neighbors. Maybe you could mow the grass while they're on vacation. Shovel the driveway in the wintertime. You know, a big thing is learn your neighbors' names. It's not that difficult, but it's challenging. And so a little thing that I do is I got onto Google Maps, and I got a map of our, you know, five or six houses, all directions of me, and I printed it out. And as I meet new neighbors, I put their names on it. Yes, that might be creepy, okay? But it works, and I know their names now. And uh, I did affirm last service, somebody else has done that too, so it's just not me. But uh, learn your neighbor's names. You know, sometimes it might just be a, a simple phone call or a text message when they're, when they're struggling. Uh, earlier this year, I, had, I found out uh, that a guy that I knew from First Church by the name of Larry had, had passed away. And I was shocked because I just saw him at the YMCA uh, a couple days earlier. And I thought, well, I didn't know Larry was sick. What's going on? And so I called his house. I wanted to see how his wife, Ann, was doing. And uh, a man picked the phone up. I thought it was probably Larry's son. And uh, I said, I'm just calling to check and see how Ann's doing. He's like, she's fine. Uh, she's out running errands. I'm like, okay. It's kind of a weird thing to be doing, grocery shopping or whatever, after your husband just died, but oh well. And so I got talking a little bit more, and uh, the guy goes like, who is this again? I said, this is Brian from First Church. Why are you calling? I said, well, I'm just calling to check in and see how Ann was doing. I said, who is this? And he said, this is Larry. <laughs> I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. You're supposed to be dead. <laughs> so there are two guys with the same first name and last name connected with First Church, and I messed it up. But um, <laughs> at least I tried, right? See, you know, too often this, this concept of investing in relationships and loving people is, is overwhelming. People just give up. But again, it's, it's not complex. It's simple. It's simple. And maybe, maybe you're like me, you're like, yeah, I don't have my act together. I'm messed up. My spiritual life isn't where it needs to be. And I, I, maybe, maybe God's not calling me to do this. Well, God's calling all of us. And it's simple as see a need, meet a need. See a need, meet a need. See, our, our job is to connect with people and help them out however we can, love on them the best we can. God's job is to stir in their hearts, and then when we have the opportunity, share the hope of Christ that we have with them. But it's critical to understand that we're not loving our neighbors and investing in that relationship to accomplish an agenda. You know, we should love because God has called us to love. One author writes this, he says, many years ago, a couple we slightly knew invited us to their house for dessert, which turned out to be a high-pressure sales presentation for a multi-level marketing company. Anybody gone through those before? Yeah, those are exciting. He said, we felt tricked. Even though we've received many subsequent invitations from other people for similar presentations, always masked as something different, we could smell a long way off like a dead fish, and we were never tricked again. And he continues by saying this, he says, so it goes with most attempts to share Christ with others. Most people could smell fake friendship a long way off and avoid these people like they avoid dead fish. Smelling like Jesus, however, smells like loving our neighbors, 
loving them lavishly and for the pure and simple reason that the kind of person that God has called us to be, loving without an agenda. See, and our job is to love people. God's job is to stir in their hearts at the right time. We get a privilege to speak with them. And maybe you're like me, and there's people in your lives that you would love to see come to Christ, that would know the, the transformation that he's made in your life. And maybe you've been investing in someone's life, and you're just not seeing God do anything. And my encouragement today, keep loving, keep being present, and may the story I'm about to tell you be an encouragement to you today. I met Tom earlier this year. Uh, Tom was new to our church. He was excited about church. He's excited about following Christ. But for the last 30 years, Tom's journey, which started in agnosticism, which is neither believing nor disbelieving God, had moved in to be an atheist. He wanted nothing to do with God because of past interactions with church. His daughter Alyssa started attending First Church when she was a student about 15 years ago. Tom's brother has been here for years as well. And while neither of them gave up on, on Tom coming to know who Jesus is, they knew there wouldn't be much hope because Tom was pretty closed off. He wanted nothing to do with God. His daughter Alyssa told me, she said, I never in my life thought my dad would accept Christ. I used to tell my close friends that if he were to start coming to church and accept Christ, I would never doubt the power of prayer and that God could do anything. I, enjoy, I joined a women's Bible study group in 2017, and the study was on heaven, and someone in the group was talking about never giving up praying for someone to come to Christ. And Alyssa says, I wanted to speak up and say, yeah, but you don't know my dad. You don't know my dad. Then on March 16th of this year, Alyssa suffered a life-threatening stroke at the age of 30. Tom told me, I heard about Alyssa being in the hospital when I was in Lexington. I was a nervous wreck driving back. I turned the radio off and I prayed to God that if he did exist, would he help her? And I suddenly became very calm and right in that moment, I knew I wanted to start talking to my friends for their guidance and their search, my search for God. He, he continues by saying, I consider all of this a miracle from God. A guy that was an atheist a year ago is now saying there's a miracle from God. Not only did this medical emergency bring me to God, but Alyssa was able to come out of the stroke with only minor temporary issues without receiving any medication. And they found a hole in her heart that we didn't know about, and it's been fixed. And so if that hadn't have happened, she would have had heart issues down the road. See, God used something outside of our control, a very scary situation, as a catalyst to open up Tom's heart to him. And thankfully, his daughter Alyssa has fully recovered from her stroke and had the privilege of baptizing her dad in June. Alyssa told me, I'm still in awe daily of what God has done and how he's done it. And she says, I would go through having a stroke over and over and over again to know that my dad knows Jesus. What a picture of loving well, praying for people, serving well. And so, so my encouragement to you today is, is may your eyes be open to people around you that need you. They need you to walk up and say, how can I help you today? 
what can I do to be there for you? They're there. But we've got to slow down, take the time, and watch. Watch what God does. Watch the people that God puts in your path and love them well. See, our world is desperately seeking for something that, that, that God offers. And God says that we get to be the conduit of hope and acceptance and love and transformation by which the world gets to hear about God. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless cheerfully. Be generous with the different things that God has given you, passing them around so everybody can get in. If it's words, let it be God's words. If it's help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus, and he'll get the credit as the one mighty in charge of everything, encores until the end of time.